We are live. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Well, you're the first guest over here, and I don't know how this is going to go because uh, it's the first thing. But before we start, let me just tell you what I intend to do through this YouTube thing. Um, I just want to have conversation with people around the world. So, you know, historians, intellectuals, but political commentators everyone um, and i want to i wanted to start it with you because i find you to be extremely interesting extremely engaging and you're one of those rare person of my age who's actually interested in these uh, engaging deeply in these topics you know everyone else that i've met has a superficial knowledge of it which they don't get from books or anything they just you know it's just what everyone believes the status quo but you uh, are special because you tend to look at it from the perspective of the other side you want to make the best argument for the other side and you are willing to give them the benefit of doubt so first can you tell me is there any do you have any difficulty in managing that nuance because you have a certain perspective on it so are you sometimes biased let's say when you write about a certain people and you feel like you're misrepresenting them so go on yeah i mean first things first i just want to say i'm utterly honored and privileged to, to be the first person on on your show um i know that i said in the past that i would be you know like a very loyal subscriber if if you know you started a youtube channel so to be the first person on it i mean yeah i i didn't imagine that it would be the case so thank you so much this is like really special for you and it really does mean a lot to me um that that you know you kind of decided to start this way um regarding your question i think this is interesting because i do think that like because there's a bit of like a dichotomy between like let's say people you like and people you don't like people whose views you appreciate and people whose views you don't it does get a bit difficult to sometimes give someone like the benefit of doubt knowing their history of for instance misrepresenting facts or in your eyes at least presenting views that that you think are necessarily fair to your side right so it does get difficult it's a challenge that i've definitely grappled with because i look at my older writings um stuff that i've written on my blog stuff that i've written um even for op india for example and i'd say my views have evolved significantly in like the last 3 4 years since when i started because i think there were times when i wasn't necessarily fair to the other person whose views i was countering so it's always important to kind of ensure that you're not strawmanning the other side and and like the other person's views and sometimes being honest about it kind of like to yourself introspecting and realizing that you've made a mistake in the past and acknowledging it um it it, it does go a long way so I I think when you owe yourself to a specific side and you have to like toe the party line I mean that that makes it significantly harder for you to have that nuance but when your only objective is to be honest and like to stand by what you think is is right and legitimate it it becomes substantially easier because then you know you can kind of um admit your mistakes and things like that I mean I I'm not saying I'm doing this really well either but I'm I'm kind of starting to realize um that that it's important So tell me one mistake that you've made or which you came to realize was a misrepresentation later on. Oh yeah, multiple times. I think I've deleted quite a few of my, my older <laughs> tweets. 
aren't representative of, of what I think right now. Um, well, off the top of my head, actually, mm, I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, I kind of think back at, at certain pieces that I wrote like a few years ago. Um, I think, for instance, when I wrote a piece about um, the misrepresentations in, in like in CBSE textbooks, I wrote this a while ago. It was actually my first ever article uh, that came out. So it was on how like NCRT and CBSE books like hugely, hugely misrepresent Hinduism and, um, and, and just make students think uh, wrong of their own culture without actually like having nuance and without actually analyzing what's written and things like that. But the problem with it was not really its conclusion, but I think sometimes what I would do is I would take pictures from certain textbooks. For example, they would say the caste system was discriminatory and there was a hierarchy. And then what I would do in response is to assert that it's not the case and that the Varanashrama Dharma was different, right? but I wouldn't necessarily explain what the difference between caste and Varna actually was. And I didn't do that in the piece. And if I was given another chance, what I would do is actually take the other side at its absolute best and assume that the caste system was discriminatory and try to like objectively analyze the difference between what Varnas were supposed to be in Indian scriptures, like the Bhagavad Gita, um, or even any of the Smritis that people point to. And then like what their conception for caste is, right? I didn't necessarily do that. So for instance, it's not really the conclusions, but it's the means that I used um, th that were often like quite different. My views on animal rights, for instance, have changed a lot in the last few years. Um, I was a vegetarian and I thought I was doing the right thing, but uh, whenever like I was confronted by vegans, um, I, I would kind of just take the easy way out and say, you know, veganism was a bit excessive. I've changed from that. So I think it, it often is about like kind of introspecting um, and, and like realizing your mistakes. So I think that's that's one example. Yep, we'll come to veganism. I actually have a, you know, I'm going to give you 30 minutes to talk about that. So, mm -hmm. but before that, I want to like, let's start by talking about uh, Audrey Trosky recently blocked you. How was it experience? How does it feel? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think that's, um, it, it's, I mean, I don't know if I've been blocked by someone before. Maybe like if anyone's watching this that has blocked me, I'd love to know, <laughs> uh, but, but I hope not. Uh, I, it's the first block on Twitter that I've ever noticed. And I, I thought it was interesting because like ever since I joined Twitter, I was, I was 14, like almost 15 when I first joined Twitter. Um, and kind of like when I first told my parents that I was joining Twitter, right? It was on the precondition that I would not descend to trolling. I would not descend to like, for instance, um, I don't know, getting personal, you know, using expletives, being abusive or, or anything like that. Like a, a lot of the problematic behavior that you see on social media where people just because they're anonymous don't, uh, don't feel accountable for their views. I promised myself and, you know, even, even for instance, my parents back then that I would do away with, with all that. So I thought that, you know, I'd be past the point of like being blocked because I thought I'd just engage respectfully. And, um, I think I was blocked when I tweeted about, well, if I, if I recall correctly, I think it was a tweet about how Audrey Trushka's views on, on like the Hindu right. I think she, she said something like, oh, the Hindu right is, or Hindu nationalists are incapable of academic inquiry um, and, and cannot and they cannot debate me, which I think is just deeply elitist and offensive on so many levels. Because I think, first of all, she brings a dissociation between Hinduism and Hindutva, right? So, I mean, I don't agree with that dissociation, but let's assume it's true. She doesn't even say the Hindutva, like Brigade, she literally says the Hindu right, 
Okay, so like even by her own semantics, it's just Hindus who are nationalists just are incapable of academic inquiry. I think that's a broad generalization that's way too crass. I pointed out that like it, it's pretty derogatory. And I mean, to say that like a whole brand of people just because they love their country and happen to be Hindus are incapable of, of being academic. So I said it, it, it has like racial undertones. And I just pointed that out, no offensive words, nothing. I just said it's, it's elitist and it's, it's wrong. And I got blocked as a result. So um, th that was that. But again, I, I don't think that, uh, th that I was disrespectful in my conduct. But yeah, I, I, that's, that's the story behind it. So why exactly do you think Hindutva and Hindu, Hinduism are you know, not dissimilar things? Because I think from where Audrey Trisk and a lot of leftists get their opinion from is from the text of the, uh, those who are proponents of Hinduism, you know, Savarkar, Golwalkar, all of these people. And Savarkar explicitly writes that Hindutva is not Hinduism. Hindutva is more than Hinduism. It's uh, separate from it. It's, it doesn't have any dogma. Hinduism is, you know, kind of on the spiritual religions realm and Hindutva is the political application of that, you know, it politically speaks for Hindus. So why exactly do you think that there's no difference between Hindutva and Hinduism when the difference is clearly elucidated in the writings of the popularizer of Hindutva itself. Yeah, I think, look, the, the difference that you're referring to, right, that Savarkar kind of brings about is, well, I, I think to say it's political, I mean, or, or the political ideology of Hindutva is different from Hinduism, I think is a bit reductive because um, the, the essential, like, I mean, a, a lot of Hindutva uh, thinkers that, you know, for instance, that go back to the RSS time and time again, what they kind of espoused was this idea that Hinduism is, okay, like let's say it's a philosophical doctrine, right? Or, or like it's, it's something, it, it has to do with theology, it has to do with like your beliefs and so on. And that Hindutva is all about politics. No, I think Hindutva is often about defending a lot of the Hindu beliefs that you had. So for instance, even the concept of intellectually engaging with somebody, what Adi Shankaracharya did, what Chanakya did, right? Like, I think all this counts as Hindutva insofar as the politics of Hindutva that you're referring to still is a defense of Hinduism. So for instance, if you adopt a political ideology and you call that Hindutva, right? That has to do with the fact that you, in whatever way that, that you deem fit, are trying to defend Hinduism from like external forces that are threats to it. Like, it, it, does, does that make sense? So the idea is that like Hindutva in and of itself is, is something that's built as like a defense mechanism. And that defense mechanism isn't a new thing. It hasn't emerged in like the 20th century or the 19th century. It existed like ages ago, centuries ago, when people fought to defend Hinduism against like the onslaught of, of many thinkers who were Charvakas, who were Buddhists and so on. So I think this, this idea that like defending Hinduism from external forces that, that question its very relevance like the idea that it's new, I think is quite bizarre. Like even if there is that explicit difference. Semantically speaking, Hinduism is, is just like an English way to say Hindutva because the, the root word Tva, as I pointed out before, right? Um, is, is in fact just ism in Sanskrit. So like there's no objective semantic difference. And the idea that resisting, I mean, that, that like resisting external threats is kind of new, I think is, is, kind, is kind of strange. So, yeah. Well, the idea of resisting, the, it's interesting that you brought up Buddhists and the Charvakas because Hindutva explicitly includes them in the realm of, um, you know, of what it calls Hindus. 
uh, and it, it explicitly like Sarvakar says that you know this sort of political ideology of it, the political iteration of Hindutva emerged because of a need to unite uh, Hindus, unite, uh, form it, I form an idea of nationhood itself. And that is the reason why um, the Charvakas, the Sikhs, the Jains, all of them are included in the Hindu fold, even though they are, many of their views are in fact extremely uh, contradictory and extremely, uh, let's say, um, abusive towards Hinduism. Like the, I'm explicitly pointing out towards Charvakas. Like if you read the Charvaka text, it's far more uh, Hindu phobic to use the term than any uh, of the, any of what Audrey Truskay or uh, these lefties today now say, you know? So, to me, it points out that Hindutva is kind of a political ideology founded upon territorial nationhood and not a sort of religious ideology. That is, it's an ethno-nationalist ideology. So what exactly is wrong with that point of view? So let me, um, yeah, l- let me just like, I- I'm glad you pointed this out because I did preempt that you'd bring up that Hindutva, for instance, encapsulates the idea of Buddhism and Sikhism, right? And and like in the past, the examples that I gave didn't in- include that, right? Obviously, there's room for nuance and there's room for evolution. So for example, the notion that like Hindu doctrine, like, or, or let's just say Sanatana Dharma, okay, just, just so we're like semantically kind of on the same page. In the past, Sanatana Dharma that believed in the importance of Vedas, okay, defended itself from Buddhist thinkers, like in the case of Adi Shankaracharya, who rejected the importance of Vedas, correct? Right now, there is like, and, and this is where it's important to realize here, okay, just like how in the past, right, Shaivas and Vaishnavas were on completely different pages one day, like they, they absolutely were, right? What he did was bring them together and say that like you guys are together and you're fighting against something completely different, right? This external threat. And so let's try and like, and, and this is exactly why Adi Shankaracharya kind of engaged with Buddhism. So he unified a lot of divisions within the community and then like basically try to fend off external um, external threats. And when I say threats, I mean intellectual threats, not like, you know, physical ones or like violent ones, right? In the same exact way, I think this spirit of including different identities under one and like to, to, to like kind of get to a common goal where you're um, alleviating external threats, like is like it's the case with, with like modern day Hindutva that you speak about is very much consistent with the older version of Hindutva. So for instance, having... Buddhists, Sikhs, right, um, Jains, Hindus, all of them together who believe in the concept of karma, who believe in the concept of like rebirth, right, who believe, you know, all, all these kinds of things, a lot of these like common things that, you know, are, are very like unique to them. I mean, them coming together, despite a few differences here and there, is not necessarily a bad thing. And it's not inconsistent with the older conception of what I call Hindutva of the past. So I, I don't think that there's a fundamental difference. Second thing I want to point out here is specifically with Audrey Trushka, right? The reason I pointed out the difference between Hinduism and Hindutva not being as um, clear as Audrey Trushka pretends is because she claims it to be like, I mean, as a linguistic scholar, it often does get confusing when she says that these two words are fundamentally different because it means that like historically, for a long time, these two things have, have not been intertwined. I argue that it has, 
and definitionally too that's true so like i think it, it definitely does ring of like I, i think there are undertones of like misinformation here when she is a linguistic scholar pretends that there's like some objective linguistic difference when there isn't one so um i think one of the objections that you get from the left let's say um or from liberals um is that hindutva is inherently exclusive so and the reason they say this and this is a very specific reason is because the writings of all of these people um and when i'm speaking about hindutva i'm speaking about the modern version of hindutva the one that you know came up after savarkar let's say savarkar kolwalkar the rss the reason they point this out is because if you read the writings of golwalkar savarkar or even before that the uh, ideas of tilak they are clearly there's an exclusivist element to them and um, muslims and christians and all of the religions that are emerged from outside are given a sort of uh, you know invader status parsis you know they're sort of honorary members like the jews nazis did with certain jews so in that sense i think that there is some legitimacy to the argument that um certain forms of hindutva are in fact exclusivist because you're well aware of uh, the extremist writings of kolwalkar you know even in 1966 he was uh, very intently against the constitution against the uh, national flag so to say that the rss throughout its history has been a single you know nationalistic inclusivist organization is in my opinion or the hindutva movement for that matter in my opinion is just factually incorrect yeah i i don't uh, i i anvesh i don't think anyone argues that i don't think anyone argues that any movement in history rss included indian national congress included right was 100% right every single time i don't think anyone argues that but i think here's how you judge the merit of any institution including the rss the right way to do it is not to say that like oh someone had a certain had like a certain view and that was problematic by modern standards right that that's obviously like a ludicrous metric to use so what is the right metric to use the right metric to use is first of all is there a space for evolution is there a space for growth and is there a space for inclusion right we look at the congress today right and, and in the past there were people who had like deeply deeply problematic views okay like with without any doubt and these were the kind of people who um i mean wh- when they kind of espouse these views right the reason we don't consider the congress party like a fascist organization in the status quo is that there was a space for dissent there were people across like a broad spectrum in the same way i would argue that rss had a broad spectrum okay they had people like bal gangadhar tilak okay on on the one end okay people like savarkar who had slightly more extreme views than for instance someone like tilak okay and then you had people who were like outright regressives who didn't believe so like there's there's clearly a spectrum here right and these people could engage with each other absolutely now i think what you're trying to argue is that people who were even on the most liberal end of the spectrum were still regressive in some mm-hmm. way right the yeah. problem with the argument is that a lot of the times including for instance in the case of golwalkar these people's views evolved meaning like golwalkar when he put out bunch of thoughts right towards the end of his life i think like 
in fact, years after, I'm, I'm not like remembering my history right in terms of dates, but I know for a fact that he himself said that he disagreed with a lot of things that he wrote in the past, right? I mean, for instance, how he, um, so, so for instance, how he presented certain groups within his books, like there were things that he regretted as well. And I think insofar as there's that space for evolution, there's that space for growth. And the RSS today has come a long way from where it was in the past, in the same way that the Communist Party of India has come a long way from where it was in the past, right? I think you regret an organization and institution's rise when its past didn't allow that space for growth, right? And insofar as the RSS allowed that and allowed that spectrum of views, I'm perfectly happy to say the RSS was, was a nationalist organization that cared for India and that had nuance. So do you not think that this perception is partly based because of the RSS inability to convince um, us of that? Because from what I see in the RSS is not, you know, of course, many of the current RSS leaders disavow from the extremist views that were held in the past, but I don't see that more often. That is, you know, when I talk with most Hindutva people, they either don't acknowledge that this is what is this is what the problem with the RSS or the Hindutva right is, or they go to the extreme end saying that, you know, this is what they said, and this is the right way to do it, this is the right way forward. So I don't see that space from um, to acknowledge past mistakes or to exclude certain people. It's like everybody is in this spectrum and, you know, there is no clear cut division. You know, this is your extremist and we're not going to allow you into the mainstream. I don't think there's a clear cut division when it comes to the RSS. Now with the I uh, liberals, that has happened to a certain extent. It hasn't happened completely, but it has happened to a certain extent. So liberal would completely agree with you that uh, free market liberals would completely agree with you that Nehru was wrong uh, about the economic policies or the Chinese aggression. But in the right wing, as it exists in contemporary uh, times, I don't see that quite often. I see you, you are willing to sort of, you know, have a nuanced discussion. Swapandas Gupta is willing to have a sort of nuanced discussion, but in the sort of general uh, you know, the LCDs, I don't see that. Let me tell you why. I think th there's a very clear reason for this, okay? Either A, people owe themselves to the organization and all that the history is, is all about to the point where they cannot objectively analyze the mistakes of the organization. That's not to say I think the RSS has made mistakes, okay? But I do think that their views have like changed a bit. I mean, not a bit, a lot. And given that, I think, in general, like when, when you owe yourself to a certain party, a certain person, then you can't like kind of show the various shades that this person or that this organization actually has, right? Good example of this, Gandhi. We've lionized Gandhi to a crazy amount to the point where we are just unable to, or are unwilling often to like acknowledge the genuinely problematic things that Gandhi's done, the genuinely problematic things Gandhi stood for, whether that's about, you know, the rights of indigenous people in Africa or, you know, his views on women. I mean, like so many different things, right? And so given that, I think what I want to say here is that there are people within the organization that, that acknowledge the nuance that maybe don't want to kind of talk about it because in their capacity as people who are, who are serving the organization, they realize that it doesn't work out for them. Um, 
but that's true for any political party that's true for any institution but i think even within the rss it's only because you've had that introspection that the rss has grown that that you know the rss today has has a muslim munch right or mm-hmm. the rss has, has just yeah it's it's come a long way i i don't think that the history of the rss is exclusive by the way so i just want to make that clear but at the same time i do think that there's been a lot more inclusion in in the last many years than there has in the past right and it's 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 like it's the exact same thing so i think when you owe yourself to a certain person a certain political party a certain institution you you feel this burden that you have to defend everything they ever stood for which is just not the case and 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 i think that's probably why you i mean a lot of the people that you claim to speak to right are also folks that might you know espouse these views that like let's say even if there were outright aggressive views espoused by some people in the rss like they they either try to deny it or they try to pretend it never happened or whatever which you don't have to i think as long as you acknowledge that there was space for other views and that those views were countered and they can be countered i think you you're good to go so a lot of people don't realize that they think that's an indictment on the institution as a whole all that it stands for on the ideology on the country and i think when you do that you lose your your ability to kind of objectively sit there and say no that was right that was wrong so yeah Don't you think that the reason why we are having this discussion on you know sort of historical wrongs is because this is brought up by the you know BJP and the RSS repeatedly? So what I see from the left and the right is that the right points out the mistakes of the left, and the left points out the mistakes of the uh, right that happened late, let's say, seventy uh, years ago, you know, or hundred years ago, and I think that is. an inaccurate way to read history to reduce history to um you know the flaws of one person or to reduce a person to his flaws is just not the right way to do it and as long as the right continues to do it the left will continue to do it and you know this is like a feedback mechanism this will keep going on unless we accept that you know there is actually room for nuance over here these people were flawed they had their um you know they had their good parts and they had their flawed parts and we are willing to acknowledge both of that and i don't see that either from the left or the right you know as you rightly point out in the case of uh, gandhi you know who has been as not just by the uh, left in fact by the mainstream right even so we don't discuss his uh, controversial views the i think the joseph lelivelt's um, what which is actually nuance biography great soul is still banned in gujarat yeah right so i don't think that in the indian discourse there is uh, we are allowing a room for nuance let, let me just disagree here okay and and, yeah. and here i think there's a fundamental difference between how the right disagrees with with history and then points out history and the left does look obviously that's going to be bombastic stuff on either side this isn't about the extremes right? this is about how the mainstream right argues with the mainstream left okay here's a fundamental difference the right comes from the perspective of their institutions being vilified for ages the rss was banned straight after gandhi was killed right and and, and like you know it was vilified for all subsequent decades okay this has been painted as an extremist organization the equivalent of the ss in in like nazi germany so it's, it's like ridiculous kind of demonization beyond the point of repair okay so this is the this is the kind of background we're talking about compare that to how nehru was presented compare that to how gandhi was presented compare that to how any of you know the heroes of the congress were presented for decades right 
So when the right points out the mistakes of these people and focuses on the mistakes of these people, that comes from a perspective of being fed only good things for decades. Whereas when the left continues to vilify the RSS and pretend like there's absolutely nothing else going on, like the like you know RSS is some kind of like an extreme version of or, or like some kind of um, a, an institution that just propel, uh, that propels like Nazi views and things like that, that comes from I mean on the back of like a huge history of demonization, a huge history of censorship, as well as like just factually inaccurate things, right? So there is a fundamental difference here. I think society for too long has pushed the left's heroes and the right is counteracting it, which creates balance. The right's institutions have been vilified for centuries, for like ages, and the left is just trying to pile onto that, which I think is problematic. So there is a difference. I just want to point that out. As far as, yeah, I think as, as far as the rest of it is concerned, 100%, I think um, it's, it's the same exact thing with, with Gandhi. And yeah, the mainstream right, probably the reason we, I mean, yeah, the reason the mainstream right is is like, afraid to say anything about Gandhi is because I think it's just been so widely accepted that Gandhi is, is like a good figure and, and like a figure of truth and, and all that's holy and all that to the point where you get demonized even more if you say anything against Gandhi. You're considered a Godse supporter if you do that. So I think it's in the right's interest to do that, but I don't think the right fails to realize where Gandhi also went wrong. Yeah, that's my answer. It could be, but... Uh, um... Do you not think that the mainstream right uh, is also, when it comes to issues, uh, like ideal issues of, say, changing history textbook, making a nuanced, uh, giving a nuanced point of view, like both, I think both the left and the right fail in that, even though the left has this sort of monopoly over that. And the right is, first of all, it's not willing to change it. That's the first thing. It's not willing to like, change the whole educational structure, the whole educational textbooks or the grand narratives. Secondly, when the right actually presents its intellectuals, they happen to be someone like Dina Nath Batra, who spouts all ridiculous, hateful, bigoted, and just plain wrong history. Or for instance, when Bajpay tried to actually change Bajpayee's regime tried to change textbooks in the um, in the first term. It was plain, factually incorrect materials um, intended to glorify a certain point of view, a certain perspective. And I think that that is honestly not the right way to go forward, right? Yeah, I mean... Actually, let me, let me just try and flip this. I, I want to ask you, what do you think is the right way to go forward? If, if you were, a, well, right, I, I'd be curious here. Well, the right way to go forward is to simply, you know, present the facts as they are and to, you know, say that, look, our history is not just, you know, I'm not against the, I'm not in favor of the great man theory as Kali put it. So I would say, you know, all of these events led to the partisan of, uh, led to India's freedom movement. It wasn't just Gandhi or any of these people. I'm saying that let's acknowledge the contributions that everyone has, but let's point out that it wasn't, you know, let's also acknowledge the contribution that have not been spoken of. I'm saying that create a nuanced perspective, right? So I'm saying um, there should be room for criticism in our history textbooks of revered historical figures. 
and there should also be room for adulation for the rights that they did. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I don't think anyone anywhere, whether right or left, will ever disagree with that. I think everyone, like, I mean, if you go ask Romila Thapar about her textbooks, right? Do you want to present facts? Yes. Do you want to be nuanced? Yes. Right. And and like, do you want to present the pros and cons? Yes. But somewhere in the process, somewhere in the methodology, it all goes wrong, right? And here's here's the problem. I think it's it's often like quite easy for us to, to like come here and critique textbooks. And you're right in pointing out that there is a deficiency in the academics you have. I mean, I, I do blame a large part of the fact that, you know, you don't have right-wing academics on the fact that the left has hegemonized it. It becomes absolutely impossible to get into the academia if you don't have some version of like left-wing views, especially like getting to like write textbooks and things like that. I mean, I'm applying to college right now, right, in the United States. And I mean, I'm literally compelled to stand for, I mean, some version of, of like left-wing views, some version of social justice, some version of what the left considers social justice to even have a shot at like any of the top universities that, that I'm aiming at, right? This is just, a, this is gatekeeping at like its absolute worst to get into university, right? Forget, you know, going there, producing research, getting your, you know, paper or, or your work basically hailed by other academics, having the word spread around, having it read, you know, peer reviewed journal. Like, I, I think the list goes on, right? If getting into university in, in a place like the United States, right, or even in India for that matter, I don't think social sciences in India is that different to, um, what, to what, you know, the US does and the kind of gatekeeping that they do, right? And so if it's that level of crazy amount of gatekeeping, how does a right-wing historian or how does someone who, let's say, even has the view that like Hinduism wasn't casteist, Hinduism wasn't problematic, how does someone get to the top without being called some kind of Brahminical casteist bigot? It's it's ridiculously difficult, right? So I think it's it's easy to say, well, I mean, the right has no academics and that's their problem. But I think this comes because of, I mean, huge decades of just institutional hegemony by the left. And to... And I'm not saying this as someone who falls on the right wing of, of you know this political spectrum. I say this as someone even neutral. I think it's, it's hard to deny. I think even William Dalrymple, like um, a, a well-known historian, that um, even Wendy Doniger called her own mentor and things like that in her book, right? So he's. I, I would say he doesn't have skin in the game. He has no reason to support the right. But even he said India, a post-independent India, like basically took. I mean, the left took over the academia in in a post-independent India. So I think. It's, it's important to recognize just how bad this hegemony is. And that's why it's so difficult. So I think the moment we can do away with that, the moment, you know, for instance, we can have institutions like the RSS and so on, devote its resources, not just to politics, but also to, for instance, to ensuring that you get the kinds of academics uh, th that you need, or like people who go and study the social sciences and so on. Like when you get that, which I think you already have, like people like me, for instance, want to go and pursue social sciences. And there are people like me, right? And as much as you get more, as as long as you get more of that and the left stops, you know, and having this stranglehold over the academia, I think you can get it if the government really cares. I do think this government cares, um, but I haven't seen too much evidence of it, but I think as long as the left is willing to get rid of its, its control uh, over the academia, I think it's, it's gonna be organic change. Well, I completely agree with that because uh, one of the things that I've also seen in academia Indian or, you know, in the Western academies, it's just the same situation everywhere, except for France, uh, because the French happen, you know, they basically agree on the central issues. We don't agree on the central ideological issues. And the French 
you know can afford to do that because they just don't care for what the rest of the world thinks they're a developed country and you know they can afford to do uh, the way things the way they want to do so when it comes to you know phrases like islamophobia or anything the french president clearly announces that you know this is a problem that we need to fight we believe in freedom of expression and while they left in the rest of the world has sort of you know given up the idea of free speech even though in the 1960s it was actually the old left which is pause the principles of freedom of speech like if you uh, even as late as 2000 is like the right wing was literally the one claiming that you know uh, for the the parental advisory sticker that we have on albums it was because of the right wing because of the likes of george bush and you know who were claiming that there were these things in the music rap music at that time or rock music before which was the devil's music now it has completely flipped now it's like the right wing keeps talking about free speech and the left wing is now retreating back to you know sensitivity safe space or whatever um so in my opinion there is i completely agree with you that there's a hegemony of the left i have no idea how to remove that hegemony because of the reason that it has spread everywhere like yeah. you get left wing views through your ott platforms through the source that you watch through the books that you read you know it's just all around in our culture and what i see in the right wing is that the right wing is slowly like adopting to that you know instead of like opposing they were opposing it for a while but now they're like you know then if the left cancels these people we are also going to use cancel culture right so that is also happening and i also see uh, in the indian right wing particularly the use of leftist terminologies like the leftist theory to sort of frame the indian um, hindutva movement you know in op india for instance where you write i think your editor has written a uh, 2000 page article on it like using terms like intersectionality and you know why hindus are really the oppressed ones and muslim are the oppressors and the colonizers and you know this is basically you know to me it seems like that kind of rhetoric is like the mirror image of what the left wing does and this marks the victory of the left wing it's like the right is saying that you have won because what the what the right is essentially doing is accepting everything that the left says accepting the culture itself and uh, saying that and using it for itself right so the ideas themselves that the left wing espouses have in a way won and the right wing is simply mirroring that so how do you think that so i don't see a lot of opposition from that uh, of that from the right wing so how do you think we can come around to it where the right wing in india especially actually advocates for free speech instead of selective speech i i don't think so here's the thing right you i think you talk about an inversion where like the left is is you know in cancel culture and i mean it's it's engaged in things like that and the right has kind of mirrored the same thing where it stood for free speech right the truth is the indian right never really i mean i don't think free speech absolute free speech was ever even like on the table in india i've never seen it i don't know like no. correct 
it, it's never been on the table. So I don't even think. Uh, wait, wait. Yeah. Just to correct that, uh, I don't know about politicians, but absolute free speech was uh, before the First Amendment was introduced. Absolute free speech was the you know the standard norm in India based on the judgments that the courts have given. In fact, the First Amendment was introduced especially to uh, circumvent the judgments of the um, judiciary. Okay. So for eight months after independence or something, absolute free speech was the case in India. Uh, justice, I, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, he wrote, uh, th there was a justice who wrote that, you know, even if someone says that uh, advocates for murder in speech, like says it, you should murder this person or you should murder my, I want to murder my wife or whatever, then he should be allowed to say so. So absolute free speech was present in India until the Nehru administration introduced the First Amendment. Wow, okay. You, you learn something new every day. I didn't know that. That's, that's really interesting. I'm going to read more on it after this. But um, okay. I mean, even if that's true, right? I think the truth is in political discourse, at least for the last like many years that, that I've, you know, kind of followed politics. And even for, you know, the time before that, I think there was just so too much censorship from either side of the political like kind of spectrum to the point where I don't think any side, any party, um, or, or indeed that like any ideological leaning, whether on the right or the left, like ever stood for absolute free speech, i.e. if you even if you want to condone violence and stand by it or incite it, you have the right to do so. I'm just going to prosecute violence. I, I've never seen, I mean, I haven't seen anyone like take that kind of position in India. That's not an independent thinker. Certainly no one in any party, right? And so given this, I think it, it isn't really an inversion. I think it's pretty consistent with what the right and the left have actually stood for in India, because I think the Indian right is slightly different from, from like the right in America. But that being said, let me just address what you said about Op India really quickly, because I think Op India, from what I see, right, they, they do like a lot of really interesting things that admittedly they wouldn't do if, if for instance, Op India were just like mainstream media, let's say Op India was like Times of India or the Hindu, okay, and the editors were to run it, okay, it would look different from what Op India is meant for today. Why? Because basically Op India seeks to do to left-wing media what left-wing media does to the right, okay? So for example, if the left focuses on the religion of, you know, a certain individual, right, who commits a murder and he happens to be a Brahmin, okay? Like, I mean, not, not a religion, but caste, right? Let's say they focus on, on, on you know, his caste, right? The, I mean, Op, Op India will specifically focus on the fact that someone who commits a murder is Muslim, okay? This isn't necessarily to, you know, say, oh, all Muslims, you know, are, are like this or anything like that. But it's to do to the left what the left has historically done to Hindus, to Brahmins, to India, and like to basically factions of the right or, or to groups that have like traditionally been on the right. Okay. And so this is the point of Op India. And I think that's why when, when you see them use language that the left does, things like canceling, things like intersectionality, right? Things like colonizers and so on. First of all, I don't think the, the word colonizers in and of itself is, is a like leftist terminology, but in general, what I mean to say is that the reason they do it is because I think it's often important to counteract the kind of rhetoric that comes from the left and the same kind of language that the left uses. And Op India, specifically Op India is, I mean, they, they are meant for that. That's what they do. They 
like, I mean, there will be right-leaning organizations like Swaraja, there will be left-leaning ones like the Hindu, right? But then you have things, you, you need to also have like organizations on the right that do exactly what left-wing media does and Open India does exactly that. Yeah, well, I really want to move on to, you know, I really want to discuss this, but I want to move on to veganism because we haven't even started that and it's been, what, 40 minutes now. Oh, so you're a vegan. Yeah. Uh, why? Okay, I think um, it's easier to answer this question than the question, why aren't you vegan? So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, I'm, I'm vegan for like basically because I care about animals. It's not really environmental, although I think that is an important component of it. It's not health reasons, although I think that is also an important component of it. It mainly is, um, it, it is the fact that like, I think the systemic abuse that, that animals kind of go through thanks to the meat and dairy industry is, is genuinely abhorrent. It's disgusting the way, you know, animals are treated right right the way up you know when they, when they go to slaughterhouses when you know they're well i mean for instance e even in the case of like so-called ethical slaughter even the act of taking away an animal's life a sentient being that i mean that feels emotions when when, when you know you kill it in, in the minutes before you do it you know or, or the pain that it goes through while you do it all these things you know it wants to live and it's fighting to live and to take away its life for our taste for what we say is our nutrition, which is just not true, but even if it is, right, you know, for, for like taste and things like that, um, is I think just wrong. And that's that's why I don't eat meat. Um, dairy is, is, is a slightly different story, but it's the same exact reason. It's about ethics. I think the way you treat animals when you take away, you know, so I, I think for instance, where, where I stay at least, and, and certain, this is also true in India, but where I stay, what they do is to, to get milk, they, artificially inseminate cows okay and they so, so that you know obviously these cows are they're basically put through what we would call rape for humans and then you have their babies being born so then they they can then produce milk and then you know i think within minutes of of you know the, the calf's birth the calf is taken away and then you have these cows being milked time and time again and you know they're raped for five six times in their lifetime it just continues so it's it's just painful and then at the end of it all the only difference between India and the rest of the world is that the rest of the world will send the cow once it's old to slaughter. India might leave it on the streets, but it's equally disgusting. So I wouldn't want to do that. I think the milk is meant for the calf and yeah, I'm, I'm not going near it. So that, that's why I'm vegan. To me, it seems like the argument that you're making is primarily motivated by emotional reasons, sentimental reasons. And Here's why it doesn't work out for me. Um, senti the sentimental reasons, is, you know, in themselves. So you can convince me, let's say, uh, like vegans do. What they do is they show you a video of what really happens in these factory farms and anything. And you know, the natural instinct is to be horrified by it. And some people even um, stop eating meat just by watching a single video. But that is in and of itself an emotional reaction, you know? So another emotional reaction would be to say that, you know, it's, it's the same as a person who says, I'm disgusted by homosexuality and that's why it shouldn't be permitted. So in that, um, that is also an emotional sort of argument for it. So I want you to, and look, 
here's the thing i agree with veganism but because i'm not a vegan i'm going to play the devil's advocate over here okay i agree with the ethical principles with peter singer and everything but just to play the devil's advocate i want you to argue for the vegan position from a the perspective of a rational uh, from rationalism from mere philosophical arguments so for instance Roger Scruton, the conservative philosopher, points out that the um, likes of Singer and the vegan movement, they talk about all of the things which human beings share with animals, but they miss the things that human beings don't share with animals, right? So vegans don't emphasize on the animal rights activists, the ethical vegans don't emphasize on how we are different from animals and because to be morally to be a creature which is considered you know who is morally who is in our moral consideration it has to be like us in a way and that is why the vegans emphasize on that so how would you answer to say scruton um i would point out the hypocrisy of the of anyone who's non vegan really um and i think if, if they're talking about some kind of a proximity bias or like a, a bias that's created by i don't know the similarity that we have to a certain animal i i would really just you know kind of dwell on the kinds of animals that we eat today and the kinds of animals we don't eat we don't eat dogs because we see you know they can be our friends they're man's best friends they're similar to us you know they also feel things like emotion they are also loyal okay we're okay with eating a hen because all we know as far as we're concerned is it pecks and it makes a weird sound right so i think there's a real sense of hypocrisy and and i think if you're talking from a logical perspective here and, and like if you want to take a philosophical approach i will take one in in a second but before that i just want to like emphasize the fact that if you really want to i mean take an approach that is logically and that is logically consistent right and you don't kill dogs but you do kill pigs you do kill hens you do kill cows okay i mean not in india but in other parts of the world right so w- when you do things like that i think there is something fundamentally uh, th- that kind of ironically contradicts the logic that you were talking about which is that you value some lives over others because they are more similar to you than others but the truth is the vegan approach tries to maximize it. i mean to, to to kind of maximize that um that that empathy i mean even from a logical perspective a honey bee is absolutely nothing like me but i don't eat honey right so i think there's and and i think because of that veganism to me is is definitely logically consistent as far as like a philosophical justification is concerned it's it's a simple utilitarian approach i mean you try to minimize the pain that you induce both on yourself and your environment and um and, and maximize like the the pleasure that that you kind of get and i think any kind of pleasure you get from eating like some kind of a cheeseburger right is definitely outweighed by the suffering an animal goes through and um i i just want to like also Yeah I mean th- th- that's that's pretty much yeah what i have to say about that like but, gonna... but that perspective assumes that i or the person who's arguing actually cares about animals so why is so my the next question would be why should we care about animals one of but let me emphasize on one of the things which is you know very common anti vegan argument um which is that animals do not have rationality and that is one of the crucial difference because to be considered in our sort of moral circle a being has to have rationality which 
humans have, but animals, a lot of them do not have rationality. And it's ridiculous to talk about animal rights because we don't care about all animals equally, right? We don't care about an ant as much as we care about, say, a dog or a cow. So even, even vegans, like even if they're, they're given a choice to choose one life over the other, they would choose um, the other because of various reasons. The ant has a sort of, you know, it's called nociceps and stimulus reaction to it while a cow actually feels pain, right? So that is one of the reasons because of utilitarians actually care about the suffering of animals. So how would you answer the argument that rationality, which is key to be considered in our moral standing, is not prevalent in all animals or is less prevalent in all animals than, say, human beings? So I have two responses to this. First of all, I, I do think that like this idea that rationality is a prerequisite before considering the moral justification of murder I mean, that the, the rationality is a prerequisite for whether or not you call something murder. I think it's ridiculous because let me point to like a bunch of things that aren't rational that you would strongly, strongly object to killing. Okay. You would not kill a dog despite its rationality. You would not kill a human that, for instance, might have a certain problem. Okay. Like, for instance, if, if a person is just physically incapable of thinking, right? And I mean, is completely dependent on, on like you to help, to, to help like, be fed to help you know move around whatever right i don't think anyone would be okay with murdering this person for the sake of food or any other stupid reason just because well i mean that guy's not rational i think that's ridiculous right i think all of us would object to that happening if we saw it happen in front of us and so rationality never was a prerequisite for us right and so so i mean and and like quickly on this idea of like ants and so on i agree i agree with you that you know this moral arbitrariness of picking some things over others, some animals over others, is, it is a big problem. And I think vegans are part of the movement against it. So if, for instance, you consider a dog to be more important than an ant, there's no objective reason to do that, but people just do it, right? I think veganism is a movement against that. So if anything, that's a reason to be more vegan, not less. Okay, and, but second, like, let me just take you at your best. Let's assume best case scenario that rationality somehow becomes the prerequisite. Even then, like from a rational perspective, if you want to know how it benefits you as a human to be vegan, I would point to the health and environmental reasons that I think are perfectly like legitimate and important when you consider the future of the planet and your own body. So uh, yeah, I mean, I could dwell on why it's good for the environment and why it's good for you as a person, but I think um, that's been overdone everywhere. So I, I could just point you to certain sources or you probably even know the justifications. But yeah, um, that, that's pretty much what I have to say. I think the argument that you're making in, you know, sort of philosophical terms is called the marginal cases argument, which is that, you know, you pointed out the example of uh, a human being who is like sick and has uh, lost his capability of, let's say, rationality. Well, the objection to that would be that uh, even if a human being is sick, he has the potentiality of rationality. Rationality is not a continuum. Like I am not rational when I'm asleep, but that doesn't mean that I should be murdered for it. So rationality is, you know, we're not always rational, but we have the potentiality of rationality, which an animal 
does not um, possess in as much amount as uh, human being possess. And this is what this is one of the things which separates human beings from animals. And and there are lots of things like Scruton points out that animals are not, you know, uh, they may not understand purpose, for instance. That is, they have a sort of stimulus response reactions, which is uh, quite scientific. Um, like I pointed out the example of nociceptions, like plants, uh, sorry, ants avoid being hurt because not because they understand, you know, what is going to happen to them or that they feel pain, but it's like an instant reaction. They do not, they just, they're almost like survival machines, which is why when you cut the um, head of a cockroach, it will still, its body will still keep working like nothing has happened. So when you're talking about rational agents, rational agents, there's always a chance for them to gain rationality. Like even in the worst case scenario, we have seen examples of human beings redeeming, reclaiming back their rationality. Like there's a French, um, there was this French guy who had this um, disease, brain disease called hypo, um, I forget the brain disease, but he, his brain was not functioning at all. Like he was born without a brain, but he still led a normal life. He was still able to understand things and, uh, you know, still able to comprehend, like not throughout his life, but there was a moment when he was able to do that. So it's always, so the anti-vegan crowd will argue that it's always in this case, it's in the best interest to err on the side of error. That is, it's good to treat them rational because there is always a chance that they will, uh, when time comes, regain their rationality because they are, are born with the potential of rationality which animals don't have. Look, Anvish, the problem with this is, like, there's no clear reason as to why rationality should matter when you're talking about murder. So, for instance, in my case, I, I mean, I'm pretty principally consistent that it's not about, you know, rationality or not. It's about pain, whether that's emotional, physical or whatever, right? And I mean, I, I think it's, it's as clear as possible. You just want to reduce that pain inflicted on any other being, right? I don't care about rationality or not, right? Whether it has rationality or not, right? But I mean, for instance, I, I think the metric could be as arbitrary as if I have five fingers, then you know my th then like you shouldn't kill me but then if if you don't have five fingers i can't so that means that like any animal counts then right so i think there's no objective reason as to why rationality should be the metric when you're trying to minimize pain um and and, and like yeah I, I think it's it's as clear as seeing a cow cry when when you're killing it or, or when you're taking away its its scarf right and i think this question of why should I care if a cow cries? Why should I care if, if like, uh, if, if a hen dies or, or like, you know, battles for its life? I think there is no inherent logical reason as to why you should care. There's no inherent logical reason as to why you should care if if an African child dies today of, of starvation. There's absolutely none whatsoever. It has zero bearing on how you live, right? But I think we're all inherently empathetic beings and we don't like to see pain in front of our eyes. It's for the same reason that people that you point out, like when they look at what happens in slaughterhouses, they flinch, they don't want to eat meat, at least in the next meal, right? And it's because I think there is something inherent to us that refuses to appreciate that, that suffering, right? And I think 
when people say, oh, it's okay, when they look at a slaughterhouse video, that just speaks of their desensitization. It's nothing that they've inherently done, but it's that they've seen it so much that they're just desensitized to it and they don't care beyond the point. But I think inherently, like if you show a child or, or you know, tell a child about what's happened in, in a slaughterhouse, you know, from a young age, that child, I guarantee you, will not want to eat meat, right? And it's because inherently, I feel like we are, are conditioned and programmed to empathize. And even if we don't, Again, I, I think there is something important to realize here, which is that, for instance, like dogs, for instance, aren't rational, but we don't want to kill them because we make that connection with them. And I say that when we can empathize with a dog's happiness and, and, and pain, why can't we do that to other animals? And even if you want to look at it from my own selfish perspective, again, I would point to the environmental and, um, and health reasons for veganism, all of which have perfectly sound justifications that, again, I'm happy to elaborate on. Right. So um, how um, important do you think, like compared to human beings, how relevant is an animal's life? Like, who do you put first? Like, is a human being's life, is an infant's life as important as, say, the life of an animal? Okay. So I think this varies, right? I, I would ask you this. Whose life would you weigh more? your parents or your siblings or mine, right? There's no inherent reason to weigh your parents' life or your sibling's life over mine, but you would weigh it nonetheless because of the attachment you have. I might be more attached to you as a human than I would be to a pig. And therefore, you know, like I might save you over a pig, but that's no reason to say that one, that your life is more important than it's. That's my answer. But tell me, tell me what you should do in a given situation. Like, tell me, should we treat animals the way we treat infants? Let's say, like, is our moral consideration to them as much as we have our moral consideration to uh, human children? Well, I mean, I, I think, like, logically speaking, there's no reason why any animal's life should be, I mean, way, way to be any less important than a human's life. I, I don't see a, a reason. I mean, in fact, I think most species contribute way more to this environment and to our ecosystem than humans do. If you take away like a honeybee, the entire ecosystem falls apart. If you take away humans, every single species would be better off. There's no reason whatsoever for us to be arrogant and say, oh, our, our species are, are like humans in general are really important. You know, we are, the, we are like the biggest things and God's kind of gift to the ecosystem. We're not. And I think as long as we realize our place, there's no, there's no reason why our life should matter more than theirs. Um, if you're asking me what I would say personally, I think because of the relationships I've built with humans, I would, you know, weigh a human life over another life. But logically, there's no reason whatsoever to weigh a human life over like a pig's life, for instance, or a cow's life. And I, I think if, if I do that, that's because of other biases that I have. Right. And we certainly shouldn't be weighing human stace over, over another pig's life. That's completely out of question, even if we should weigh a human's life over a pig's life. So say in an ideal vegan world, let's say where everyone is vegan, animals will get the same kind of, you know, we should try to reduce animal suffering in the same way that we try to reduce human suffering. But the logical uh, consequence of that would be, in my opinion, a bit impractical because what that would entail is that, uh, for instance, if an animal is... Uh, if an animal is 
being half eaten and, and is kept half eaten, then we will have a moral responsibility to take that animal to a hospital. We will have a moral responsibility to, you know, if like if an infant is being eaten alive by say rats, we have a moral responsibility to take that rat away. So if we see uh, another say animal being eaten away by rats, we will then have a moral responsibility to do the same. So we will have to create an entire institution which you know treats all of these animals, and that would obviously interfere with nature. But so, like, if you want to eliminate suffering, then this is what you have to do. So, what do you uh, like? Do you not think that this is the practical consequence of what you are arguing for? Not at all. And and like, <laughs> let me explain. Right. First things first. I think if if today listening to this conversation, like assuming everyone in the world listened to this and and then said, okay, I'm going to be vegan because you know that that made sense, right? Um, e- even if that happens. First things first, I think the practical consequence of whoever's viewing your show today, right? If, if he decides, for instance, or she decides um, that, you know, they don't, they're like, I'm not going to eat, I mean, meat, or I'm not going to consume animal products, maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, maybe all my life, right? You know, start to make those logical steps towards it, right? Like, as soon as you begin that, the tangible impact is that fewer animals die, right? So obviously, this like, post, I, I don't know, some kind of a dystopian vegan society that, that you know, you're talking about where we kind of go and step in, stop the lion from killing the deer and like go and rescue the wounded deer and interfere with the life is obviously, as, as I'm sure you'll appreciate a massive, massive stretch to the to advocating that, you know, people should just be more considerate of animals around them. But obviously, even if, you know, just, just for sake of thought and argument, I don't think this is at all, you know, uh, important to the vegan debate because I think obviously we're very very far from a world like this and it's not you know the most pressing consequence of veganism but even if that's the case I would say not really because what you're then doing is ensuring that you don't have an active role to play in another animal's suffering so for example if a lion kills a deer right the lion's sustenance versus the deer's sustenance right there is no reason to weigh one animal's you know, need for life more than another's. I mean, logically speaking, right? So you wouldn't intervene there. But what you would do is not consume meat on your own. And like, yeah, I think, sure. Would you have more rescue centers? Perhaps. I think that's that's a great thing in the same way that you have like puppy shelters. If you had that for like other animals, I don't think that's a problem at all. As far as intervening is concerned, I mean, in a vegan society that really did care, I think they'd find ways to make it as non-interventionist as possible and Obviously, I'm not the greatest person for logistics here, but I, I think we'd find a way to make it work. And it's certainly better than the society we live in today, where we just assume that our tastes matter more than another sentient ble- being's life. And I think that that's just wrong. Tell me, uh, elaborate on the like the environmental, you know, why should I personally not eat animals? What benefit would it give me? Okay, right. <laughs> right. So the, the thing is, I've given this... Um, this this speech to like a lot of people that that have asked me about you know uh, the environment and health so this kind of rehearsed this one but look the general gist is this like just just to make it quick what veganism I mean the the impact that veganism has on the environment is this right like it's basically a negation of how the meat industry and the dairy industry has like adversely harmed the environment so just to understand this right there are way more animals that are being consumed like literally. I mean, I think it's either tens or hundreds of bill, 
I think tens of billions of, of like animals die every single year to meet the consumption of meat eaters, right? And this is, this is not like a made up number. The number is in billions, but I just don't know how many, okay? Um, and so obviously there aren't like billions of animals living today. So what, what do they do? What does the meat industry do? It, it uses measures like artificial insemination and so on to unnaturally breed several animals within the ecosystem. You have like huge, huge, huge amounts of cows Okay, like, you know, being again, like raped so that they can produce kids, right? And, and these children are obviously fed, you know, grass, they're fed trees, so they, they graze, right? And these obviously take away a lot of, a, a lot of you know, your, um, a lot of the green environment that's really responsible for absorbing, um, I mean, toxic gases. And that's, that's basically a huge, huge contributor to climate change in the status quo. Completely getting rid of the meat industry today means that all these animals, like billions of animals that are gonna like come onto the face of the earth next year and the year after again and again and again, won't exist. It's far more sustainable for the environment. than like you have much greener ecosystems. You don't have your rainforest being like eaten away. So it's, it's just generally way, way more sustainable. Along with that, the transportation, the packaging costs of the meat industry, I mean, that's, that's a whole other topic, but I think that's, that as well contributes massively to the carbon emissions that uh, the world is facing today. So that's the broad gist. So getting rid of that means that you don't have more and more, you know, um, more and more cows, more and more animals being, you know, basically having to uh, be born and then killed again and again and again. And then you have greener um, ecosystems and like you're far more able to deal with pressing problems like climate change than you are in a world where all these animals are also taking away, you know, your, um, yeah, your ecosystems. Yeah, well, we've gone in for one hour and six minutes now. Okay. And hopefully I'll be a vegan in the future. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll be arguing for veganism after, I don't know, when I'm vegan. Yes. But it, it's yeah. completely personal. It's For me, it's like completely for selfish, completely selfish reasons uh, right now because I am kind of convinced of the moral arguments, despite what I said today. Uh, I'm convinced of the moral argument of uh, Peter Singer's arguments, uh, the utilitarian arguments. So, um, but I do, I strug I, I'm struggling with it right now. I think I'll be fine within the next few, I don't know, days. Um, cool, so do you have any questions for me? Um, yes, actually, I do have quite a few, but I realize that, that we're running out of time. So, I mean, I'm, yes. I'm going to look at this, right? When you kind of decided to get on social media, and, and I want to do this because I think there are some things that I want to know about you and like your viewer might want to also like get to know about you, right? So when you got on social media and decided that, okay, now I'm Anvesh, I'm going to make, you know, a presence on, on, on social media. I think you, I, I mean, you, you definitely started by, by calling yourself a liberal and I followed you like from your early days yeah. back when uh, I was introduced to you, right? And from there, I think you've kind of had to grapple with being, uh, with, with calling out things that the left does, right? That you think are problematic. And at the same time, holding the BJP accountable, maybe disagreeing with the right on, on certain occasions, disagreeing with the RSS or the BJP or, or, or anything, right? Or what the right stands for even, right? And you and I disagreed quite a bit. We agree quite a bit. So 
given that, I think it's it's interesting then that like I notice hostility in almost every or or like in many of the the things you put out that are like ideologically one way or another. So how do you deal with being objective? And does the hate that you get from one side or another necessarily affect um, what you're doing or, or like the kinds of tweets that you feel like putting out? So do you think twice before, I don't know, calling the right out again or the left out again? And um, and, and yeah, how do you grapple with it if, if, if you're not kind of, um, if you're not flinching in, in the face of, you know, hate and things like that? Well, I would say right now, I've just stopped caring. Honestly, um... I never had that view where I was like looking at the, you know, I had a very binary view of the right. Now I don't, I am, you know, much closer to the right now. I would say I'm still a liberal, but much closer to the right. And, um, but it's a sort of uh, right that is embedded in left-wing philosophy, particularly because I point out that the things that the left believes in were directly contradictory to the things that the leftist thinkers that they espouse actually argued for. So the, the social justice thing that the left believes in is in direct contradiction to what Marx argued for or what you know even more contemporary leftists like Noam Chomsky argue for, right? So in my uh, view, I... I joined, when I joined Twitter, I was um, more to the left, to the conventional left, let's say I'm still in the left, but to the conventional sort of social justice left than I am now. And I've gotten the most sort of hate from the trans, uh, the so-called traditionals. You know, they're the ones who trolled me. Once or twice, I think I've been trolled by right-wing people, but surprisingly never by left-wing people i don't know why i have no clue but uh even the sort of death traits and they're not serious death traits but like death traits that i get are all from the coming from the trad wing or the right wing so no i have not i i don't care about that at all because at a certain point first it hits you first you're like when you get it for the first time and a stranger suddenly attacks you and says things about your uh, your parents, you know, and they've said ridiculous things about my background. You know, they claim that I have, you know, I was, I did not know that my father was an MP. Uh-huh. So I, so, so a certain guy on Twitter uh, and he had like 90 likes over that tweet. He said that my father was an MP and that I am only getting followers or whatever because my father is an MP. Now, I did not know that before I read his tweet. So I thought that these guys are just making stuff up at this point and they have no argument. They have like zero arguments. So why should I care about what they say? You know, now I'm just, this is just entertaining for me, you know, the trolling and stuff. But yes, I would like social media to become less toxic. I would like everybody to have a sort of, um, you know, safe space to express their opinions without being hounded. You know, honest criticisms, but without being hounded. And I think that problem would go away as soon as Twitter uh, has a mechanism in which anonymous accounts are not allowed. So you have to like... I, I I was definitely protected by anonymity for a long time. 
Um, that's not to say I was afraid to be held accountable because of my views, but more so that, I mean, I'd be held accountable by, by, by you know, for instance, people that I don't deserve to be held accountable by, by, for instance, my school. I mean, I don't know, the places that, that I've engaged with, like other platforms in my personal life that I've engaged with, right? So I, I kind of wanted to be anonymous to protect my identity, especially where I live and things like that. But, um, and, and that's why, for instance, it's interesting you say that the chads are the ones that try to kind of, you know, go after you, these death threats and things like that. For me, I've sort of been semi-hounded ages ago uh, by the left um, in that I remember that like someone tried to dox me when I wrote an article about Romila Thapar and he was like, you know, he basically said I had to like prove my identity if, I mean, or he just asserted that Op India like pretty much, you know, put out a fake article under the garb of, you know, under, under this pretense that it was a teenager. And well, I mean, the guy that, that, you know, did try to do that to his credit did engage with me later, uh, wrote to me, apologized, changed his position and, and, and that definitely I respect. So um, I, I think you're right that like when, when these people who do it, right, you know, when they're anonymous, you know, and, and you know, you hold them to it and you say, no, it's not true and things like that. They don't have a name or face to save so they can just go about it, whether left wing or right wing. Because I think there's a huge amount of Congress trolls all of a sudden. All of a sudden, I've noticed. Um, yeah, yeah. Huge, huge amount. But um, yeah, and, well, and, recently Congress trolls have been spamming me. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that that's true. So when, when you can't be held accountable one way or another, you think you can just shoot off your head. You don't get caught. Um, and yeah. But you but, have to say what you think. True, you know? true. Because a lot of people in Twitter don't say what they think they say what their followers want to hear unfortunately definitely but no any other questions no i think that's that's pretty much it and we've had a long conversation uh today yeah but i i really enjoyed this and i i hope you know your viewers um watch more of you so i'm i'm, I'm gonna like do what i see other people do on youtube so please like share and subscribe <laughs> to Anish's channel um and, well, I've- I'm sure you've gonna... always been sort of yeah sorry but that is that that did like share and subscribe part is always being annoying to me I always skip that but it's like if you join YouTube this is what you have to say to become a you know the first rule of becoming a YouTuber yes so yeah do do like share and subscribe and we'll have much more for you coming thank you Rohan thank you my pleasure